Let's pray. Lord, first of all, this morning we do want to confess that you are beautiful, incredible, marvelous, majestic, powerful, loving, graceful, merciful, wrathful, just. Lord, you're so complex, and uh, if we really study you and we stop to examine you, then we are left um, pretty empty-handed with words. But we can't say clearly together corporately that you are beautiful. Or this morning we want to um, pray for Paul Blue and Family Fellowship. Lord, I want to just lift up that people. I pray for that church, Lord. I pray that it's the people that are enjoying our Savior. I pray that it is the people that are growing in um, obedience, love, and faith. Lord, I pray for Paul and his family that he and his wife are enjoying the Lord together, that he is giving his wife his first and his best. I pray that you will bless him as a result of that obedience and ministry to his wife, that you'll bless him by uh, sweet ministry gushing over onto his family and then onto your people at Family Fellowship. Lord, I pray that he is wrecked and undone by the word. I pray that he has men surrounding him and a wife surrounding him who can shoot straight with him and can humble him lovingly. Lord, I pray that you will guard us from ever being in a, having a spirit of competition with another church in this community to include family fellowship. And pray for family sh- fellowship for the same. Lord, I pray that you will guard the Christians in this community, the churches, from ever having a secret pleasure that's trouble that may be going on in another church. Guard us from ever having a, um, whether secret or overt, pursuit of trying to allure someone away. Or we just pray that we are truly cheering for each other because of what's at stake. Lord, we beg that you'll be enjoyed at Family Fellowship, the other church in this community, and, and this morning as well, Lord. In these next few minutes, I pray that you'll be honored. I pray that your design will be on display. Pray that you'll be glorified in um, maybe um, small Ben, hopefully. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Acts chapter 14. This is just where we're beginning. I just want you to turn there just so you're at the ready. I have a couple different titles for this message. Y'all, come on in. Get this crew in here. A bunch of youth had a camp out last night, and they're, uh, they're filing in. I had a couple of different titles for this message. The first title was State of the Leadership Address. Somebody asked me if I was going to be announced like the president is when he comes in for State of the Union. Ben McGraw. And uh, no, I, actually I changed the name of that. I changed the name to Miscellaneous Thoughts from Three Months of Silence. <clears throat> <laughs> You'll see that that'll capture it, I hope. I want to share something with you from our Constitution before we look at Acts. A few passages in Acts and then a few others. When I, I know when I say Constitution that some of you might be going... 
right off the bat before I even say anything about it that, oh man, this is going to be boring. Let me share with you what our Constitution is. It's a document that basically says how we operate and what we believe. It's got our doctrinal statement in it. Um, but in our Constitution, there are these words regarding our leadership of this church. It says, within each local church, we, being Cross Point Fellowship, believe God provides a team of pastors, elders, deacons. Pastors, elders are synonymous. I'll use those terms interchangeably. Pastors, elders, and deacons, and other workers who are to guide and enable the congregation to develop spiritual maturity. Pastors, elders, again synonymous, are appointed to exercise spiritual oversight for the flock entrusted to them and will ultimately be held accountable for their decisions and actions toward the Lord, toward each other, and toward the church body. I share that First, because I want to introduce you to a few passages, and then I want to make a case for something. I may not need to make the case, but with some of you, I might need to. So beginning in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I want to emphasize um, the fact that there's a plural word there for elders and when they had appointed elders for them in every church and notice where there's not a plural elders in every church the next passage is right right down the page chapter 15 verse 2 says and Paul and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. Again, plural, in one town. Plural elders in likely one church. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Again, plural, elders, singular, church, to come to him. Now turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes to Titus and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint in Crete elders in every town, plural, in every singular town. Now turn just a few pages over on the other side of Hebrews to the book of James. James chapter 5, verse 14 Reads, is anyone among you sick? It says, let him call for the elders of the church. One sick person, one church, plural leadership. More than one pastor. More than one overseer. More than one elder. And the last passage is in 1 Peter, just a few pages over. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. 
Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. reason I shared that kind of machine gun of passages is because I, for those of you who've been at Crosspoint for a while, I think you've had the chance to see the beauty of plural leadership. You've had a three-month illustration of it, for those of you who've been here for at least the last three months. For those of you who may be here for the first time or first of a few times, and you're like kind of creeped out by the thought of elders, like that's not what my mama taught me, that's okay. I want to make the case to show you that it's a biblical model. I come from a context, came from a context over the years that had a single pastor model. And while I appreciate that God did some amazing things with those churches, I watched in many cases one man after another diminish and fall in a lot of cases, not in every case. But I watched one man after another often make bad decisions. And whenever we started church five years ago, we had the beauty of sitting down with a Bible and saying, okay, what does the Bible say about how we should operate? And we were able to start from scratch. That was a beautiful thing. And while I'm thankful for where many of us came from, I'm thankful for God's design. And I'm thankful for the chance to start over tomorrow with a biblical model, which is what we've done here, I believe. One of the beauties of the multiple leadership, what you've seen in the last three months, as Steve Roberts preached for a month, Steve Mayo preached for a month, Brad Cardwell preached for a month, while I was gone for three months. Those of you here for the first time, you're like, what is this all about? I've been on what's called sabbatical. The root word of that is Sabbath for three months. I'm going to get into some personal issues in a moment. But that's the reason that I'm dealing with this issue of plural leadership because you've had an incredible illustration of it. And I just want to point out a few things about what you've seen and what you should know about plural leadership. What it does when you have plural leadership and you have more than one pastor, in our case we have four, me and three others, is you have access to leadership. You multiply your access to the guy because there's more than the guy. How many times have you seen a single pastor model where one guy has to have his fingers in everything and everybody's got to bounce a decision off him in order to move forward to do anything? And this guy, you can imagine over time, is going to be pretty worn out and maybe ineffective. And it might limit the size of the church. It might limit the shepherding that could actually be done well. But actually having more than one leader multiplies the access to leaders. The guys that you've seen up here preaching over the last three months, they are my peers. They're not guys that are just kind of second fiddle to the guy that's usually teaching. They are peers, equal footing. I'm the only guy that's paid. (laughs) (laughs) But that, man, I'm telling you, these guys, we we are at eye level. And the beauty is you have access to the pastors and more access when there's four of us. Say something else that's beautiful about multiple plural leadership is that it multiplies the wisdom beyond any one man. Before we had elders, we had a first year and a half we were here or so, uh, we had what was called the staff bearers. Staff bearers was kind of a pre-elder board. It was a group of people, men and women, that I just kind of grabbed. People that seemed like they had some wisdom. And I'm a green pastor needing, some, needing to bounce some things off people at times. And I saw the benefit in, in meeting with this kind of a pre-elder board that I would go into this, these meetings oftentimes with a decision that I had already made. 
and just kind of bouncing off of them for approval. And I'd walk out of there thinking, man, what just happened? They didn't, they didn't buy it. <laughs> and then when I would listen to a plural, at least in that case, a plural wisdom that came back, I found that there was a wisdom that was greater than me. And we've seen that time after time with the elders. There's a wisdom in the four of us that no single one of us has. And what it makes this guy want oftentimes when I'm at a, in a position where I need some wisdom, I'm running to the elders just like you should. I'm, I'm on equal footing with you going to this elder, these group of guys, and saying I need some wisdom in this setting that I don't have by myself. And I'm walking away going, dude, that's incredible. God gave us something that I didn't have, and he didn't have, and he didn't have, and he didn't have. We walked away kind of with our heads swimming, and God did something really awesome. There's a wisdom that's beyond any one of us. And I, the reason I share that with you is because I want to urge you, any single one of you or any two of you, to realize that you may think you've got it figured out. These four guys don't, individually don't think we've got it figured out. Not even close. But together, we think we're making some progress. <laughs> together, we're seeing some things that are beyond any one of us. It's humbling because it diminishes each, in each of us individually. But it's also God exalting. Does God design displaying? And we see His design and appreciate it. So I want you to know that there's a wisdom that's beyond any one of us in the plurality of us. It also multiplies effectiveness when there's plural leadership. What we did about six months ago, I want to say it was six months, we, we met and we talked about uh, kind of a division of labor where we kind of break up responsibility. Not, I mean, ultimately we would all be responsible, the four of us, for the leadership of the church, but we may have areas that we kind of focused on, kind of uh, special oversight areas. So here's what they are, and I'm going to ask Mark McKinney if he's not here, somebody can, I'll get this to him if he's not here. But I, I want this on our website. I want you to know what elder has special oversight over what area of the church's operation. I'm going to have oversight over the staff. Makes sense, or at least special oversight over the staff. I see them every day. It makes sense for me to have special oversight over them. Deacons, I'm going to have special oversight over the deacons. And I'll address that more later. And I have special oversight over areas of discipling. It doesn't mean that I'm the only guy, discipling guy. But I'm going to have a special eye to, are we doing it? Are we truly making disciples and being disciples? Steve Roberts is, having, is going to have special and currently has special oversight over the area of the children's ministry. And he also has special oversight over the area of benevolence ministry. So if you have questions or issues or things that you're wrestling with, it doesn't, it doesn't mean don't approach any of the other elders, but realize that Steve's probably going to be the guy that's most in the know. That's beautiful. Multiple, multiple, multiple access. The third guy is Brad. Brad's going to have and currently has uh, special oversight over missions, over building and physical issues like our property here and building construction, over membership issues, whether it might be um, discipline issues or membership just various membership issues. And then Brad has partial special oversight over youth. Along with our last elder that I'll share with you is Steve Mayo. Steve Mayo, since he has a youth, is going to be at all the youth functions. He's going to have a special oversight over youth along with Brad. Brad was a youth leader at one point, so Brad's got a unique experience there as well. So the two of them 
make a great team to walk with the youth ministry. Steve Mayo also has extensive experience with money and budgets and expenditures, so he's overseeing that we'll be good stewards with what the Lord has given us here. So let's give you a little insight into who do, who's doing what. Now, <clears throat> one of the things I want to share with you about the character of our elder meeting, of how we operate together. I was looking for a series of words that would kind of paint the picture of what it's like being elders with the three of these other guys. And the words that I came up with was violent searchability. <laughs> violent accountability. You could put different words after violent, but violent's probably the best picture. And it's not physically violent, and it's not even unloving. In fact, it's very loving. But it's violent in that you are violated by the accountability and searchability that we have with each other. You may think that our elders' meetings, that there's like this special um, Shekinah glory in there, and this, you know, and we have people bring in tea for us, and, you know, this special time of angels are singing in the background. And really, I, w- I want to tell you what our elders' meetings are like. They are times where oftentimes, if one of us is in a bad place, one of us is not doing what we've been called to do as elders, the other three guys are like cobras, loving cobras, and they're poised. I'll give you an example. You could probably figure out who's who, but we won't, we won't tell you who. If one of the elders is being harsh with his people. I don't know who that could be. But if one of the elders is pummeling his people with his tone, he's got three other elders saying, dude, you can't do that. You be gentle with God's people. And I got three other guys. I, you know, I've been told that the number one sanctifying instrument in the life of a man is his wife. I believe that because she'll shoot straight with you. She'll tell you when you're off track. And I'm thankful for the sanctifying work of the Lord through my wife. But I got three other wives. Because, <laughs> man, they're on me. And they're on me rounding off sharp edges. And if one of us, one of the elders, is in a place of, of more of consultant, less shepherd, man, he's got three other guys who are saying, dude, you can't do that. If one of the other elders is in a place of not being willing to confront people. We've got other people that are saying, dude, you can't do that. And the reason we're that searchable with each other is not to brutalize each other, not to violate each other. The reason we're that searchable with each other is because of what's at stake. And what's at stake is the name and fame and renown and glory of the living God and His gospel and the beauty of, the, of, of His church. That's what's at stake. And that's why it is violently searchable, violently accountable. Three of the words that come to mind for the character of the office of elder. And If you aspire to the office of elder, man, you aspire to a good thing. That's in the Bible. You aspire to a good thing, but let me tell you what you're aspiring to. You're aspiring to three words that come to mind, that come to mind for me regularly. They're Greek words, and I'm going to help you with what, what they turn into. The first one is agonizomai. Can you look at the root of that and start to think agonizomai? Agony, that's what's in store. The next one is spendomai. So there's agony in store. There's being spent and poured out in store. And the third one, a little bit harder to figure out, is gumnazo. That's where the word gymnasium comes from. So what's in, what's in store in the work of eldering is an agonizing, 
exercise where you are poured out and spent because of what's at stake. You're at stake. According to what our Bibles say, we're stewards over your souls. And we're going to be held accountable for it. So I'm thankful for three months of being able to step away and coming back. And really, I think our church is healthier. (laughs) I'm like, should I have come back? (laughs) I think we're healthier after three months. It's beautiful. Beautiful. God's design is just awesome. Now, the second thing I'm going to share with you this morning, that was just an observation that we've had over three months of illustration. The second thing I'm going to share with you this morning is some feedback from this particular elder after three months of silence. I, um, I feel a responsibility to share with you what's happened in the last three months because I want you to know what kind of stewards we've been with the last three months. If we've just blown it or if we've, been, if we've done anything with the time. The first thing I want to share with you is that we are grateful. When I say we, I mean Christy and I and our kids. We're grateful. The kids may not know any different. They might. They probably do because I think they've experienced a different thing at home but I want you to know that we are grateful we've had two responses when we've shared with people that we're on a three-month sabbatical the first response has been dude what did you do (laughs) what did you do for them to get you out of the pulpit for three months like no I don't think we did anything maybe they did conspire and we just didn't know but what'd you do that was the first response the second response was wow your church really takes care of you. I mean, we're like, dude, you don't even know. You don't even know how this people takes care of their pastors, their elders. Man, we are grateful. We are refreshed. Um, the first month of the three months, we traveled. <laughs> we loaded up in the minivan and went 6,000 miles for a month. A month out of the minivan, a month out of tents, camping and mooching off friends all over the country. It was a great time. We had a great time. And we came back. The gas was, I think, the most expensive. We paid $4.40 per gallon in Barstow, California. $2.21 or something like that this morning. It was bad timing, you know. (laughs) Bummer. But, man, we had a great time. We came back, though, and I had this overwhelming feeling that, man, I've got to have a product. I've got two months where I'm not preaching, two months where nobody's really expecting anything of me. I've got to write a book. <laughs> and actually, I had plans to write a book called He Stinketh from a sermon series a couple years ago. It's a book that still needs to be written. So what I did, anyway, still, you probably figure out that I have no book for you. <laughs> Well, I went to my study, man, I pulled out my old, my old, I had Scott make copies of the CDs, uh, the audios of those sermons. Man, I'm going to go back and listen to it. I'm going to climb back in that, and I'm going to write this book. And I listened to the first two, and I was just overwhelmed with this feeling that, man, I'm not Sabbathing. I'm not resting. I was just overwhelmed with this feeling that, man, this is hard, hard, ugly, hard, difficult work. And I thought, man, sabbatical, Sabbath, I'm not doing this now. And you know what I did for the rest of the month and three quarters? I rested my behind off. I mean, I was serious about rest. People at first would ask me, hey man, how's your vacation, uh, your sabbatical going? And I was offended at first because I was like, hey man, I'm going to be working, you know. 
But then after a while, I'm like, dude, it's good, boy. I'm resting, shoot. <laughs> Golly, you wouldn't even believe how I'm resting. I went to a movie this afternoon. You know, I mean, I was serious about resting. And we're coming back refreshed and uh, grateful. But probably the greatest blessing during the sabbatical was in regards to our marriage. We went into uh, ministry, full-time ministry, five years ago with our marriage, I would say, really healthy. Man, Christy and I just felt like, man, we, I, I was in seminary in Fort Worth. We had a lot, spent a lot of time together, did a bunch of stuff as a family in Fort Worth, and it, we only had two kids. No, we had three by the time Daniel, Daniel was just born when we moved here. And I, I, I would say that our marriage was really healthy, and in the last five years, it, it's grown less and less healthy. And they, they say that in ministry that if you have any weaknesses in your marriage, they will be amplified and on, um, they will be accentuated in ministry. And one of the blessings for us during the sabbatical was to realize that we needed to work on our marriage. The way it began was we're on this trip for a month. Um, you spend a lot of time driving and thinking while you're driving. And I was thinking, man, I'm harboring unforgiveness with lots of people, with family members, with my wife, potentially even people that are in our church. And I thought to myself, man, that just doesn't reconcile. Here I am, a herald of the gospel of grace and forgiveness, and I've got unforgiveness toward other people. And I was convicted about it. Actually, I was listening to this Irish preacher preaching on sovereignty, and it was so rich, and it was a side note that he made about unforgiveness. He said, what that is, is really you're paying people back. When somebody's wronged you and you don't forgive them, you're paying them back. And I realized, man, I'm paying a lot of people. And I'm not lavishing on them the grace and forgiveness has been lavished on me. So I was convicted about it. And one of the things was probably after the whole he stinketh week that I was so laboring over, I talked to Brad, and I said, Brad, you know of any Christian counselors I can go to? I mean, we have local Christian counselors. We even have one in this church that I have great affection for, but I was kind of like embarrassed. So I was like, man, I've got to go outside of town, you know. <laughs> you know anybody in Dallas? <laughs> and Brad did and does. So I went to see him, and I shared with him kind of my story. I, um, I think I'm probably predisposed to being unforgiving. It doesn't excuse it. I'm predisposed to it. I was an overweight kid that stuttered so bad I couldn't get out a sentence, which just to hear bullseye. <laughs> you talk about a bullseye in school, man, in, in, at home. And um, I think I'm probably in a place of being hypersensitive toward people where unforgiveness kind of married up with this overly sensitive character that was just miserable. And I met with this guy, and he said, hey, man, tell me your story. And he said, you know, I shared with him kind of all the directions that I was experiencing unforgiveness and my burden for reconciling that as a herald of the gospel. And he said, this sounds like you need to, I need to meet with you and your wife. And this Ben counseling turned into marriage counseling. And Christy and I have been going for the last couple months, and we're going to keep going for a while. We were talking about it the last couple of weeks. And uh, like, man, should we share that with our people? And I thought, yeah, we, we got to share that with our people. 
Because we've got to let our people know that what's at stake makes it worth doing things like this. I'll show you what's at stake. Ephesians chapter 5. Before I read this passage, I'll share with you one of the things that we realized that we were convicted about is there's a difference between existing and flourishing. And you can exist in marriage and maybe even exist in marriage with an absence of conflict but still just exist. And we were burdened for flourishing because of this passage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I want you to hear the similes. You know, most of you may, some of y'all might have paid attention in English class. There's metaphors and similes, you know, the comparisons. A simile, I think, is the one that uses like or as. Am I right, teachers? Yes, good. Uses like or as. These are similes. And they're similes of the marriage compared to something. Just pay attention, take note. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as... Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery of marriage is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I'll tell you what, when we dined on that, I preached on that about a year ago, and it began to find purchase in me. And I thought about it over the course of these last couple of months. And when we realized what was at stake, we realized that, man, we needed to be vulnerable with our people. Because we need to encourage our people that if you're existing, you need to realize what's at stake, husbands and wives. If you're calling simply the absence of conflict flourishing, and you don't know what it means to be hungry like a wolf for each other, to enjoy each other again, then maybe I'll pass out some cards for other counselors. Maybe we ought to be humble and be vulnerable enough to be about flourishing because of what's at stake. If Evan, Luke, and Daniel are going to see the gospel in the way that Daddy loves Mommy, I want them to see flourish. I want them to see forgiveness daily. I want them to see a sweet ministry that is a walking visual of the ministry that Christ has with His people and the enjoyment that His people have with Christ. For us to merely exist would be like the family that is, has perfect attendance at church, comes with clean noses, parted hair, and has perfect attendance at church but does not enjoy the Lord or His gospel. That never rages. 
What does it say, man? I was at church. That's existence. When we realized what was at stake, we said, man, whatever. If our message is crippled because we're going to be authentic and vulnerable people, then whatever. May God be glorified somehow in being vulnerable and put it out there. Our marriage is sweet now. Just a little bit of work. A little bit of humility. Lord blesses it. He's blessed us, and I think there will be more blessings in store. We opted for flourish, and it's hard work, but we're after beauty, given what's at stake. Given the relationship between Christ and the church that we illustrate. To our kids, to our neighbors, to our family, and to you. We want you to get flourish. One of the other things that I'm doing for my family this last five years is taking a toll on me physically and emotionally in so many ways that um, I've committed to giving my family some undistracted time on Fridays and mostly on Saturdays. <clears throat> so I'm turning my phone off. If I answer it, I think it would be a rare occasion. If you have an emergency, that's the beauty of multiple access. You've got three other elders that aren't preaching. And there'll be Sundays where I'm not preaching, where I'll be available on a Friday. But for that preaching elder, man, at least if it's usually me, Fridays, I'm not answering the phone, I'm not checking email. Because here's what it looks like. It takes two minutes to check email on a Friday morning. Hey, babe, listen, I know I'm going to go start the school day with the kids, because I'm, I'm teacher on Fridays. I teach the kids on Fridays. I, I know I'm going to go start the school day. I know we're going to go on a hot day tonight, you know. Uh, but let me take about two minutes and check my email. Okay, whatever. I go check my email, and I read one email that gives me a burden that I carry all day long so that my kids and my wife never get me. That's all it takes, just like that. So I'm shutting it down on Fridays and Saturdays, most of Saturdays. And that's for the sake of my family. That's for the sake of my, that, I, that I'm not completely out of commission in the next five years. Man, we entered the sabbatical out of breath. And I'm hoping that the next of the, the, the five years from now, maybe I'll get to write that book. Because I won't be out of breath. But I want you to know that elder leadership is still available. Um, just not this elder when I'm preaching. One of the things that I've had the chance to do in the last three months is to think back on the five years. That's enough personal stuff. Done. Been about as vulnerable as I can be today. <coughs> One of the things that I've had the chance to do in these last three months is to think back on the treasures of the last five years. The first treasure is to think back and realize that five years ago that this people did not exist. The family and I just learned a, a passage in 1 John recently, which is appropriate since we're preaching through John. It was in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. The same guy that wrote the book of John writes these words. He says, That which we have seen and heard, in other words, the eyewitness account of what Jesus said, what Jesus did, his life and his work. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, being the reader of the book of 1 John. Us, here 2,000 years later. That which we have seen and heard, in other words, the life and work of Christ, we proclaim, communicate to you, so that you will have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I hope you see the beauty in that. 
Basically, what he's saying is this gospel message that's a testimony of what Christ did, what he said and what he did, proclaimed results in horizontal fellowship between you and me so that you will have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What he's talking about is the Word giving birth, the exposition of this story giving birth to a horizontal people who have a vertical love for the living God. That's what's happened here in the last five years. We can't say that it was some high-speed program. We can't say that it's any special personality either. Three months has just proven that. Three months where I have not been in this pulpit, and we've flourished Maybe because I've been gone. That's beautiful. You can't put your finger on a program. You can't put your finger on a person. You can't put your finger on any single thing other than the consistent week-by-week exposition of the Word. Faithful exposition. I hope and pray. Faithful exposition. Verse by verse. There it is. And God's given birth to a horizontal, loving, embracing people who are like this. (gasps) He's awesome, isn't he? Isn't that cool? That's a visual of the church. That's what he's done here in the last five years. Five years of treasures. I thought I would share with you a letter. Christy and I had the chance to visit our our old church in South Carolina a few weeks ago. And um, I have great affection for this church. The the name of the church is Shandon Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina. It's a huge, three or four thousand people, something like that. I mean, huge church. It, It is the the uh, poster child for program-driven, huge church. Everything we're not. (laughs) But it's an awesome church. I love the people. I love the pastor. His name is Dick Lincoln. And I got, anytime we visit, I usually have about 30 seconds to talk with Dr. Lincoln between services where he says, hey, man, he's the guy that ordained me. So there's kind of a, and he's only ordained like three guys ever. So there's a real special connection, but all I get is 30 seconds. I'm like, man, I need like an evening (laughs) where we're eating, you know, and talking. How can I do this? So I wrote him a letter. It's not real long, but it captures, I think, what's going on in you. It captures what God has done in this church in the last five years. It addresses our context. So I thought I would share that with you. Have you ever had a letter read, read to you before that's about you? That's what this is. Dr. Lincoln, as much as I enjoy seeing you, I must admit I'm always a little nervous about the 30-second report on what God is doing with us and maybe through us in Greenville, Texas. It really takes a meal, time, or an afternoon together, at least a well-thought-out letter and a few minutes on your end to enjoy it or to engage it. It means a lot to me to catch you up on our journey because of the special part you and Patty and Shandon have played. So here's the latest. We just passed the five-year mark out of breath and ready for our three-month sabbatical. I don't think we realized how spent we were until we had a chance to look back and consider the drama of the beginnings. We thought about the Sunday we had our first family come for membership. Remember that? Wades? They came walking down the aisle, didn't even know what to say to them. I think what I said, or at least I thought this, uh, I, and I write right here, I think the best response I could muster when they came for membership was to say incredulously, you really want to join? <laughs> now five years later, I'm still surprised when someone comes for membership because my preaching has been harsh at times, often invasive, and sometimes I've been downright impatient with God's people. My clay feet have often been quite public. 
Then there's the high bar for membership. I or one of the other elders spends hours with a family before they join. We urge them to pray and commit to a membership covenant, and we shoot pretty straight with them in the process. It's made for what seems to be quality commitments, and each year when we renew our membership covenant, we found that we've lost very few. Since the first family joined ours and the couple of families from a core group, God has grown us to over 90 families. In the meantime, we've planted another church in a college town about 30 miles away. We sent seven families to be part of this plant, and now a year later, it's turned into quite the gathering of the nations. It's stuffed with Indian and Samoan students from the university there in town, and the church is well-led and well-loved. Next paragraph. In the last five years, we've had to reckon with the difficulties of our unique context, your unique context. I've been told that Greenville's the most highly saturated church environment possibly in the world. The last time I counted, which is a couple years ago, we had 98 Christian churches in our community serving about 25,000 people in town and about 75,000 in the surrounding area. Here's the heartbreaking statistic. Only 3 to 5% of people in the area are part of a local body of believers. Those stats are like Scotland or like Germany in that they're terribly post-Christian. The most troubling issue for me in this post-Christian setting where you can throw a rock in any direction and hit a church building is that most people testify that they've had a salvation experience. The testimony from the locals doesn't reckon with the catastrophic disinterest in the local bride. The pews don't reflect the supposed relationship with Christ. The active membership roles don't line up with the almost mass report from nearly any given local that they're square with God. We're reaping a sour harvest of men, not every man, but of many men who have gone on before us pursuing decisions instead of disciples. That's not every man. Many of you have been here for years and you know of faithful stewards at different points. But in large part, we're reaping a sour harvest of men who've gone before us pursuing decisions rather than disciples. The gospel's been presented with a few quippy sayings, pursuing a quick prayer and a short dip in a cool pool, and we've been left with what seems to be even worse than lostness. Give it a name. Apostate foundness. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is or isn't, I can tell you the spiritual climate is heartbreaking. It's made for a tough field, and we've had to recast a robust chest hair gospel. I know the previous sentences can sound like they drip with pride, like we figured it out, and everyone else is in the dark in our community. And really, we're pretty humbled by the whole thing because some of those supposed professors of faith who now have no use for the bride have dined with us and have passed through the waters of our baptismal pool. The whole problem, when you really look at it and swallow hard, has taken us from a 75-mile-per-hour ministry to a 3-mile-per-hour walking pace to engage others in meaningful ways and to take our time to sow quality seed and to walk with people in the believing. It's terribly inefficient. Our back door has grown progressively smaller as a result. Third paragraph. One of the most remarkable blessings of the last five years has been to figure out what God wants us to do with Sunday mornings. These are good questions. You may have never thought of these questions. I've always struggled with these questions. 
What are we doing on Sunday morning? What is this exactly? What should our Sunday gathering be? Is it a front door where lost people can hear the gospel week by week? Or, if it is, let me just interject this. What we are is a revival tent with brick. What we are would be like a, like, let me just use this illustration for a moment. It'd be like joining the Lions Club during November. You got a real push to, everybody come join in November, man. We got a press for membership. Cool. And you join. And then you had a successful November, so the Lions Club says, hey, let's extend. I'm not picking on the Lions Club. It's just a club I can think of. And let's, I, let's extend this, this, this membership drive to November. Uh, oh, okay. You know, you're a new member. Okay, well, that makes sense. You get some more members. That's cool if you do that for a month or two. Well, come June or July, you're going to be sitting around going, dude, what else do we do? Do we just collect members? Is that all we are is on a terminal membership drive? Or, or is this Lions Club about something? That's what happens if we're all we are is recasting the gospel every week in a new form with a new different technique for getting people down the aisle. The revival tent becomes made of brick. I answered my own question. Here's the other question. Is Sunday morning in the corporate gatherings a dining room where God's people can feast and be equipped for an organic daily work? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Christy, with classmates, with other pastors gnawing on these questions. I was convicted with the thought that leaving these questions unanswered would make for a meandering ministry that was sincere and earnest, but good at nothing. Factoring in our post-Christian context, we prayerfully landed on the resolve to equip the saints for the work of service when we gather corporately. That's what we're doing right here. This realization of God's plan for us has shaped my preaching. It's liberated me to challenge the saints to live in a manner worthy of our calling, enjoying the God of the call and the Christ of the work, while the gospel is often shared. It's as we journey together through the book of John, at least so far in the last five years. Landing on Sunday saint equipping in terms of identity has also done much to flesh out our end product. We've realized that if our Sundays are equipping times, then we're actually being equipped to do something. And that something for the husband and the father is to lead his family in the faith. We found that weekly equipping has developed men who are shepherding their families and leading their own children to the Lord. We've seen more and more of Deuteronomy 6 in this people between Sundays, rising, sitting, going by the way sort of God conversations within the doors of their home. While they view me as their preacher and the other elders as pastors and preachers, they're really viewing their fathers or single mothers as their primary teacher and shepherd and pastor. While that thought would make the codependent, codependent preacher wince, it makes this dude sing. Last paragraph. I know this saint equipping emphasis could potentially sound quite inwardly focused. We might sound a bit unconcerned with lostness. Some of you who are visiting might say, hmm, I'm glad you're addressing that. Well, we're experiencing 
slowly a paradigm shift when it comes to evangelism. Shepherds come on Sunday mornings to be equipped to lead their families in the faith and that now organic worshiping family is becoming, hopefully we hope and pray, is becoming the instrument of evangelism. The worshiping family. What a novel idea. It's like Psalm 96. I'm going to read here in a few minutes. Families are ascribing, telling, blessing, declaring, and worshiping. And it's created a really neat corporate rhythm of out loud worship. It's hard to quantify and it's hard to report on. But when you see it, you just see it and you just marvel. It's scary to some husbands, fathers, and single moms. Or maybe to all husbands, fathers, and single moms. Including this one. But we work hard to encourage men and single moms to step out in faith, trusting God's design for our context. We've had some treasures in the last three years, and those are a few of them. I have some additional thoughts regarding church plants and possible upcoming church, plant, church plants that I'll share in the future. But here's the dreams for the next five years. Turn to Psalm 96. I'm going to show this to you. I've preached through this before. It's worth reading again. This is the dream that I have for these next five years. And it's exposed so beautifully in this chapter, in this book, this chapter 96. Don't you pay attention to the verbs. You need to have some working knowledge of English to, to get something out of this. Oh, I'll give you help. I'll give you a hint. Oh, sing. There's the first one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. There's another verb. Bless. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Here's more verbs. Ascribe to the Lord. Now look, here's the subject of all those verbs. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Some of you might be sitting here saying, man, I'm a single. I'm just, I don't fit into this church, at least so far, everything he's talking about. I'm counting you as a family. When I refer to 90 families... If you're a member of this church and you're single, you're a family. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Did you see all those verbs? That the family is to be about? Sing, bless, tell, declare, ascribe, bring, come, worship, tremble, say. And here's my dream for the next five years that we'll be even better at that as families. In the next five. At doing those things because here's what happens. When the family is doing these things and growing in these areas. It's the next verb. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. 
So when the family is doing all these things, man, the fields are shouting. The seas are roaring for you. They're crashing against seashores and they're clapping for the family that's worshiping and enjoying our Lord. And they're doing it all day and all night long. And listen to what else it says. It says, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Man, what a great time of year to sit out in your backyard and hear the trees sway. And hear those leaves as they're falling. And hear that wood bump against wood. And hear those leaves bump through the branches. And connect it with this and say the trees are cheering for the family that's worshiping. The trees are singing for joy before the Lord. Now, here's the best thing about my dream for the next five years. Before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. The best thing about the next five years would not be the realization of these dreams as much as it would be that we don't have five years. That He comes back before five years. That the kingdom of God has been ushered in by a people that are worshiping. That's what it's saying right here when the family's worshiping. That all creation's cheering for the family as the family's worshiping. And it says the Lord comes back. How beautiful is that? Man, that's my dream for the next five, that there won't be five. Because we'll be worshiping. Another dream I have for the next five years is to finish the book of John. (laughs) Having savored it not rush through it, having got to know our Lord better. The next dream for the next five years is that we actually have proactive eldering and deacons who deacon. One of the most difficult things in the last five years has been, especially the last year or so to two years, has been very reactive eldering. And the other elders would attest to this. Most of our elder meetings were dealing with issues that deacons should be dealing with. And we're reacting to problems. Difficulties in marriage, difficulties in the church, divisiveness, whatever. We're reacting to problems. And while there will always be a reactive character to the elder time that we spend together, man, I want us to be about proactive eldering. I need that. I had one meal a couple weeks ago. I have had lots of meals. But one meal a couple weeks ago with Bill Ruth over at Chick-fil-A. And it wasn't a crisis meal. It wasn't a reactive thing. He, it wasn't like he was in some sort of bad place. Hey, pastor, I need to talk to you. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I don't want to shut that down. But he said, man, I just want to go spend some time with you. And he's sitting there telling me about what all good God is doing in their lives, the ministry that he's put on their heart of the guy that lives near them. And I left there so refreshed. And I thought, man, how sweet will proactive eldering be? How sweet to actually be fueled to deal with those times of reactive eldering that will happen. So one of the things that we're going to start doing, and I'm going to be very consistent about it because I feel like I need to be. The other three elders each have full-time jobs that require, I mean, require travel and overtime and things like that make it very difficult for them to be very consistent. But I expect that all of us, to some degree, are going to be doing this where we're going to be meeting with the member families. I'm going to take on a family a week on Tuesday nights, starting in the A's. So if you're an A, get ready. <laughs> now realize, too, I'm going to be doing with this, this with member families. 
Because as members, we've made a commitment to hold each other accountable. And I'm going to be meeting with you and your family, the shepherd and, and his family, or the single mom, functional shepherd, and her family, and probably not in their home. In that case, a single mom, we'd meet at an office or something like that, just not being appropriate. Don't, single mom say, the pastor's going to come to my house? I'm not going to do that. But we're going to, we're going to lean forward in meeting with you before their problems. How about that notion? And actually, to give you good nourishment and give you guidance in how to shepherd your family. Not to be busybodies, <laughs> but just give you some tools. One of the things I'm going to share with families when I meet with them is a catechism that shepherds can teach their families. Um, a read through the, the, the Bible in a year thing that's, that John Stott put together that's wonderful. We're looking at getting 100 copies of those right now for each of our member families. But actually, elders meeting with you, not because you're having a problem, but just to walk with you because we're accountable for your souls and to be good stewards with the time that we have to walk with you. And this can only happen if deacons are deaconing. This can only happen if the elders are freed up to do this because the deacons are saying, give me that, elders. Give me this building. You don't need to deal with that. Give me benevolence. Give me the physical issues. Give me the single mom's names or the widows in our body so we can care for them. That'll be sweet. So one of the dreams that I have for these next five years is that deacons are deaconing, elders are being proactive, primarily, not every now and again, but primarily in our shepherding. And that you're being nourished and fed and blessed in a way that you wouldn't be otherwise. I also dream that other deacons and elders will be raised up. Likely elders from the deacons. It's almost like we're getting a sense that you almost have to learn how to be a servant <laughs> before and walk with people before you can be a, an elder. The last thing I'll share with you, and let's just take a moment, I'll share with you publicly, and it's in response to something that I've shared this morning personally. One of my dreams for the next five years is for a sweet gospel-displaying, flourishing marriage at the end of the next five. A sweet one. I'm begging for that because of what's at stake. Not for Christy's sake. It's partially, but mostly for the Lord's sake and for the gospel's sake that I love her as Christ loved the church. I appreciate y'all putting up with me. I had three months of silence. I mean, I got a lot to share, so... Next Sunday, we're going to be at Greenville Christian School. And uh, we were going to have mobile worship this Sunday, but we didn't because of what I felt like I needed to share with our people this morning. But next Sunday, we'll have mobile worship at Greenville Christian School. This coming Wednesday, instead of Bible study, I encourage you to come as families, and we will go to the neighborhoods surrounding GCS and pass out some cool little flyers. And it's so fun to do as families. I'm telling you. You might be thinking, ooh, that just creeps me out, the thought of knocking on people's doors. It's not creepy. It's cool. Just realize there are people that live around GCS in some of those new neighborhoods, the Tomahawk and all those other Indian named streets and that other stuff, those new neighborhoods over there. People that had never been invited to a church yet. <laughs> and here's what it looks like. Man, I walk up there with Luke or Evan or Christy or Daniel knock on the door, we hand them a flyer and say, hey, we really apologize for being a bother tonight, if we are at all. 
But if you're not in a church home, we would love to have you join us. We're going to be at Christian or Greenville Christian School on Sunday morning. And again, if you're not part of a church home, please come join us. There's some information on there. You can look us up online and kind of see what we're about. Have a great evening. <laughs> That's not hard. It's cool. It's so cool to do it as families. So Wednesday night, we're going to meet up here at 6. I may email about moving that up a little bit just because I need to figure out what time it gets dark. But let me take care of that. So we'll plan on meeting up here at 6 and doing that around Greenville Christian School this coming Wednesday. And then next Sunday, if you come here, the building will be locked. And you'll be like, man, what happened? And then you go, oh, yeah, they're at Greenville Christian School on mobile worship. We're doing the same thing we've done here over there. We're, just, we're, we're showing our community and we're reminding ourselves that the church is not a building. The church is a people. And we, we're mobile and agile. Man, we can go wherever. So we're going to go to Greenville, Greenville Christian School and worship there. All right, let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the chance to share these uh, miscellaneous thoughts with this people. Thank you that there is a people to share it with. Thank you that in spite of me, in spite of uh, the failings of each of us individually, that you are building a unique people that hopefully are humble and low, teachable, vulnerable because of what's at stake. Lord, I pray that you'll find a beautiful body even five years from now, more beautiful than we are now uh, for your glory. Lord, I pray that you'll find families that are worshiping um, aggressively. We pray that the trees will be clapping and singing. We pray that the seas will be roaring. pray that the field will be exulting. And Lord, even a better prayer than that, we pray that your son will come back before that is even reaches five years. Lord, we pray we'll be about what we're supposed to be about. We'll be about flourishing. Thank you so much for this sweet time we've had together this morning. We pray these things in Christ. Amen.